Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 24th of July, 2023, and this is episode 310. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and researcher Dr Jacqueline Granick about her research into international Jewish relief work during the Great War. Jacqueline is a senior lecturer in modern Jewish history at Cardiff University, and she's just completed a book on the subject of this interview. This book is published by Cambridge University Press. She spoke to me from her office in Cardiff. Jacqueline, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. May you start by introducing yourself and telling us how you became interested in the Great War and international Jewish relief work. Yes, um, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm uh, Jacqueline Granick. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in modern Jewish history these days at uh, Cardiff University. Um, I I became interested in my my subject, um, international Jewish humanitarianism in the age of the Great War, through the lens of humanitarianism and human rights. Um, and I was looking at um, at configurations of rights in in the past, and I was really interested in the interwar period, particularly because of the minority rights treaties that were negotiated with uh, Central and Eastern European countries after the First World War, um, and trying in particular to think about what that meant for Jews in um, East Central Europe. And as I worked on this topic, which at that point was a master's thesis um, at the Geneva Graduate Institute of International Development Studies, I realized that there was this organization that appeared in almost all archives on Jews and the First World War or the aftermath of the First World War um, called the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. And in conversations with my then doctoral supervisor, we decided that this organization was really not well covered in the historiography. And maybe there was a really interesting story there because in his own research, um, which is now published as a book, Night on Earth, that my, my supervisor is Davide Rodonio, um, he also was finding this particular Jewish organization coming up everywhere in, in archives on um, humanitarian relief in the Great War. So that was kind of my way in. Um, I was also interested in, in Jewish history, which came out of my own Jewish heritage and the fact that I had studied uh, Yiddish language and therefore could access historical sources um, in Yiddish, as well as in French, which I've studied and, and needed to use as a student at the Graduate Institute. So you've touched on this briefly. So what is the historiography on this area and how much sort of work has been done by scholars um, to date? There, there are obviously a number of different historiographical threads that my, my book feeds into. Um, I think one of the, the major ones here is on the history of human rights and humanitarianism. Um, and 
My book is published in um, the history, the Human Rights and History series at Cambridge University Press, which is has been a, a major series for developing this historiography. So you can kind of see um, the emergence of historiography by tracing that that series itself. Um, and since I started this this work in say 2010, um, there have there has been a lot of a lot of historiography that's come out around the history of human rights, the histories of humanitarianism, and a lot of it actually has been around World War One. Um, I think it, it sort of started um, in World War Two, and the first books to come out about human rights and history were about the UN Declaration of Human Rights, where we really kind of got a clear name for it and a, a legal draft of what human rights might be, but trying to think about the origins of that that declaration takes us right back to the First World War. Um, so there has been a, a, a lot of work coming out and, you know, we'll see in the next few years, several more um, monographs published on the First World War and uh, humanitarianism or human rights. Um, and then separately, I, I sort of think of myself as an, an international historian and a modern Jewish historian combined. Um, and so in modern Jewish history, there has been work on what might best be described as Jewish NGOs and their and their histories. Um, and those stories have been mostly told one NGO or international organization at a time. Um, and there really was a gap um, in the history of these organizations um, in the First World War and interwar eras. Um, and I think my work really is taking that space and really bringing um, a sense of what these organizations did in the First World War um, and its aftermath into literature in a way. And, and, and since my, my work got going, there's been other students who have started to look at this area a lot more closely and realize that this is actually a really pivotal moment um, for Jewish history. And I think there's a lot to say about generally um, the, the, the historiography of the First World War and Jewish history, um, and, and that overall is very sparse still. Um, this, this, my work is definitely part of that um, and try to change that. And I think that has to do with the legacy of the Holocaust and its relationship to World War II more or less in, in kind of a nutshell. Um, but in fact, um, the First World War is really important to understanding the Second World War and the Holocaust. So more and more scholars are, are realizing that and kind of returning to the First World War. Um, but there is sort of a small amount that's there, or at least that's there and is self-consciously about the First World War, as opposed to seeing itself as being something about the Russian Revolution and Jews, or um, anti-socialism in Germany and Jews. I mean, th there's there are pieces of this already out there, but it's not really been connected into 
great war stories, which is something that I really work to do. That's a useful segue into my next question. Now, when we talk about international Jewish relief, who are the organizations that are giving that relief and to whom are they delivering that relief in terms of where are these communities based uh, in, I suppose, the First World War map of Europe? So historically, let's say looking in the 19th century, um, there are a number of European Jewish NGOs that develop nation state by nation state or empire by empire. Um, and the the this kind of institutionalization of these organizations happens at the same time other kinds of proto NGOs, private associations are starting to develop in the mid to late 19th century. And, and the, the kind of original version of this organization is, let's say, is, is the Alliance Israelite Universelle, um, which is based in France and uh, does its work in um, the French Empire and around the Mediterranean um, and would carry out kind of relief projects as needed for small crises that happened in in these areas, but also take on um, political advocacy efforts for those Jews um, and, and would also do some things we might think of as development work like it established a network of schools. Um, fast forward that to, to the First World War era, um, and most of these nation states who have these Jewish organizations that are have this tradition of philanthropy and advocacy, they are themselves embroiled in the war, they and their empires. So um that's you know britain that's germany that's france that's uh the habsburg empire um and so all eyes kind of turn to america and this isn't true just for jews um in general the rise of american international political power in the 20th century is intimately connected to the first world war um and it's the big neutral power and there it happens to have the largest jewish community in a neutral power so the jewish community in america for the first time begins to receive appeals from around the jewish world that's affected by the first world war um and and it's American Jews who essentially decided to respond to this crisis and they organized that organization. I, I mentioned earlier the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee in 1914 in order to respond and provide um, a Jewish answer to um, the specific crises facing Jews in the first World War, and it worked very, very closely alongside other emerging American humanitarian institutions, including the Rockefeller Foundation, the American Red Cross, um, the American Friends Service Committee, which are Quakers in America, um, and other kind of more ephemeral organizations um, that popped up uh, in the First World War. Um, so, so largely, this this particular story of 
these years is about the relief work done by American Jews. So to which communities were they providing uh, assistance? Uh, and how, how would you, how I suppose, geographically, where would they be today in today's map? Obviously, Russian Empire and, and that all collapses. Um, but where, where were these communities located in 1914? That... Right. Um, so I think it's helpful to envision a map in one's head of the Eastern Front and to think about the fact that the majority of the world's Jews at the time lived right along what became the Eastern Front. There were six million Jews legally confined to the Western edge of the Russian Empire. That would be today's Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, Lithuania. And then there were also Jews who lived right on the other side of the Russian Empire adjacent to those areas in the Habsburg Empire, in a region called Galicia, um, in Romania, in, um, in parts of what became Poland um, that, that were not in the Russian Empire, um, and actually all down through the Balkans and uh, the Eastern Mediterranean um, in Palestine, Jerusalem, uh, Constantinople, today's Istanbul. Um, and so the, the Eastern Front and the, the fighting also of the Ottoman Empire basically happened right over where the majority of Jews in the world lived. And Jews were just literally in the crossfire of that war as, as civilians. Um, and most of most of the previous thinking explicitly around the First World War and Jews was more about Jewish experiences as soldiers, um, and particularly soldiers fighting other Jewish soldiers by having to fight neighboring states. But in fact, I would argue that the real Jewish experience of the First World War is that the majority of Jews are experiencing this kind of being stuck right at right on the Eastern Front and um, experiencing particular anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish violence as a result of that, being accused of being spies, um, being um, deported and put on cattle trains to Siberia, um, being um, experiencing pogroms, particularly if you think about uh, the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War as being kind of part of the First World War, which I do, um, towards the end of, of the First World War years, um, there are massive, basically genocidal pogroms that happen in Ukraine. Um, and uh, there is it's not, it's still unknown how many Jews died in those, but it's kind of anywhere from between 50,000 to 300,000 deaths as a result of just those pogroms, war-related pogroms in, in Ukraine. Um, so there was really a, a huge amount of displacement, um, violence, along with the, the regular 
the regular horrible things that civilians suffer when the war front comes to their home. Um, displacement, hunger, disease, homelessness, and lack of uh, clothing, etc. Um, so the work was really taking place wherever Jew Jews outside of that space could reach. And reaching those places as non-state actors was really complicated, particularly before um, the 1918 armistice, which made it more possible for American Jews to travel into those zones along the Eastern Front. Um, during the war from 1914 to 1918, American Jews basically found ways to um, use America's diplomatic neutrality and diplomatic ties with therefore countries on on all sides of the front and packaged aid for Jews along with cash going for other American humanitarian purposes. And then um, like American consuls would deliver deliver it in some form to local these the older Jewish community, the older Jewish organizations, which I mentioned, like the Alliance Israelite Universelle, would kind of get um, notification of what its Americans, American colleagues had sent uh, in terms of cash. And they would then embark on a process of trying to then deliver that um, wherever they could reach. So there were sort of separate projects and diplomatic channels going to the western side of the Eastern Front, to, to Poland and Austria, and then to also reach Jews on the eastern side of the Eastern Front via Saint via, via Petersburg, um, and also to reach Jews in the Ottoman Empire uh, via uh, American the American ambassador in um, Constantinople. I, so it was really complicated and it was always shifting. None of these arrangements was stable or last, lasted particularly long. And it was a, sh a kind of sheer creativity um, and persistence to try to figure out how to move aid across significant obstacles um, in, in wartime. And then it, it sort of took on a totally different form um, after the armistice, but was still challenging. And the areas that were being addressed remained more or less the same, but the political borders were always changing. Before we get on to obviously what happens in Eastern Europe, maybe post 1918, what were the challenges of delivering this aid to um, two combatant powers by a neutral, um, I suppose, America up until 1917 was neutral. So what sort of challenges did they face actually to get aid to these communities either side of the front line? Because it sounds like an impossibly challenging task even today. Uh, but back in 19 uh, and during the First World War must have been even worse. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I didn't quite think about so much until I started really doing this research was the importance of the telegram. Um, I mean, that was really an incredible technology. And I'm sure you've talked about telegrams or thought about them um, in, uh, in terms of a, a, a podcast on uh, the Great War. Um, so you know, telegrams and the ability to type things and copy pieces of paper, you know, this technology 
uh, steamship technology, trains, a lot of it was there. It's a modern world. Um, so in some sense, it's sort of not that hard to think about how these, these actors did the things they did. But what's really hard to, was, what was really hard to piece together was like, okay, but there are then obstacles to all of those things in a war. Um, and how do they navigate that? There's censorship, um, wire banking services stop working. Um, boats are obviously not so comfortable uh, crossing blockades and also threatened by U-boats. Um, so it's not simple. Um, I think that this happened largely through what I was starting to mention, which was American Jews' ability to um, negotiate with and find allies and work with a lot of different and central and non-state um, American actors. They, they very quickly realized that it wouldn't be enough to try to get aid as kind of an, an, an isolated uh, non-state institution. It would never work. So they had to go through formal channels approved by the U.S. War Trade Board, which meant developing close relationships with the State Department and with the Red Cross and with the Rockefeller Foundation. And they did. They worked really hard at it. Um, and they and in order to do that, they had to become very professional, very organized, very quickly. Um, and so they, 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 they basically relied on America's general humanitarian and intelligence ingenuity to be able to move any information or to move money. They just moved it the way the rest of the State Department or the war boards were moving things. Um, relief, like actual food relief, um, sometimes moved on U.S. naval ships, especially towards um, towards the Ottoman Empire. Um, there were there was negotiations to to move humanitarian supplies past the blockade um, on U.S. naval ships and was delivered to to the Ottoman Empire and not just to Jews um, in the Ottoman Empire. Um, and then second is remembering that American Jews were, were very closely connected to Jews across Europe. Um, the Jewish diaspora is a really interesting way to think about um, how diaspora communities of any kind can kind of organize themselves. Um, and particularly in this era, American Jews were still very connected in a very close kinship way to Jewish communities all across Europe. They had mostly immigrated within the last couple of generations. So they had direct family members. Um, so there was a lot of, of inbuilt trust. Um, and even if it was still sometimes very difficult to trust across such high political borders with such high stakes. Basically, American Jews were willing to send money, and if they could get that money or supplies across the ocean, were willing to trust that to more local Jewish communities to distribute as they saw fit and to keep accounts and to send that back. So it was 
it was a coordinated effort and it wasn't just sort of like Americans parachuting in. Um, and in fact, I think one of the reasons that the State Department, the U.S. State Department was interested in, in, in willing to work with American Jews was because Jews in general, because of that diaspora network, had a lot of information that the State Department thought could be useful to them for their own intelligence and humanitarian activity in many different areas, um, which may or may not have been true. Um, but certainly um, Ju the Jewish community tend to have a lot more kind of inbuilt local expertise, wherever that local was. Uh, so that is kind of how it 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 managed to to happen um like in this way despite being a non-state organization and having jews having no political power or sovereignty of their own um they were able to coordinate this kind of thing so how were the efforts of the american jewish joint distribution committee um perceived in the various nations such as um russia and germany and austro-hungary especially where often in some of those countries anti-semitism was absolutely rife at the time yeah, um, that's a hard question to answer. Um, it's a very good question and it's a very hard question to answer. So one of the things that I say makes a really big difference for understanding Jewish humanitarianism versus other forms of humanitarianism is that Jewish humanitarians were always worrying about that. Everything that they ever did, which was basically just about trying to provide basic relief, um, they were always worrying that they were going to kind of create more anti-Semitism or spark anti-Semitism, or they were concerned that refugees themselves, if they were not attended to, would cause anti-Semitism. So this was, this was a, a major concern at the time, and it was not an unfounded concern. Um, the JDC, which is an organization that still exists today, the Joint Distribution Committee, has over its now more than century long existence um, been very much at the center of many um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Jewish humanitarian workers, in other words, have become an anti-Semitic trope of their own. And that, in some sense, began in the First World War. Um, the British Jewish community community at the time basically wrung its hands and really worried, but did not definitively act in the First World War to, to provide humanitarian aid to, to Jews along the Eastern Front, largely because they were worried about anti-Semitism and the nature of um, the British uh, alignment with Russia and how the Jewish position within that would upset that if they tried to provide humanitarian relief. But American Jews' position was that it was better to act and not to, to think about it and to worry, but not to prevent that from trying to save the lives of, of people who were experiencing significant um, violence. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard it's hard to say. In some sense, it's very clear that many that that say that that the, that the receiving powers, that re the recipient countries of this humanitarian aid, they were very happy to have 
money and supplies of food for any of their civilians. You know, this was like one less burden that then they didn't have to think of. That's why I think that they were allowed this aid, this kind of aid in. They, they, they knew it was coming in. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a secret. Um, and obviously like there were, there were, there was famine going on in, in this period. So, you know, any kind of humanitarian relief was not going to be lightly turned away by any of these kind. Um, and it often came in, as I said, with other forms of humanitarian aid um, kind of packaged together. And American Jews helped to get general humanitarian aid uh, to, to Europe as well. Um, and uh, Jew, the Jewish organizations which were delivering um, Jewish aid would also sometimes deliver um, non like non sectarian aid and vice versa. But the Quakers, for example, were kind of developed a really close relationship um, with these Jewish organizations and sometimes would deliver specifically Jewish aid. Um, there are some records of um, kind of the joint distribution committee offices being attacked. Um, there's certainly evidence in newspapers of the time of kind of these anti-Semitic accusations of kind of Jews getting aid while their neighbors don't. Um, but but it was also something that the joint tried to the joint, the JPC tried to address. Uh, it tried to help uh, neighbors. Um, and um, it, uh, it just kind of, it, it's very hard to know, like kind of like long-term thinking, like what, what exactly causes anti-Semitism? It's not, people who think a lot about anti-Semitism would say that it's not really what Jews do, it's what, it's this kind of conspiratorial thinking around Jews. So there are a lot of conspiratorial thinking developed around these kinds of Jewish humanitarian organizations, but it's not that what they did, it, it, that's kind of victim blaming, right? To say like they, they, would, they would cause anti-Semitism. Um, so it's, it's a really complicated thing to, to think about and to talk about. Um, and it was very, very difficult uh, to navigate this very tense environment. Um, it, it, and it was not, only difficult in Europe where kind of outright anti-Jewish violence was happening, but within Europe too, which was um, developing um, anti-immigration quotas for the first time and um, was very xenophobic. Um, and the war was certainly kind of enforcing those tendencies. Um, there was the Red Scare in this era. And so um, it, was, it was also not easy uh, and my archival research in the U.S. National Archives also show that the State Department was felt very was basically anti-Semitic towards the Joint Distribution Committee and other um, Jewish organizations that were working in, in these humanitarian fields, um, and so and was was basically often trying to play them. They you know they they had their but sometimes you know, it worked out in kind of surprising ways that like they were able to carry out the humanitarian work maybe because because of anti-Semitic assumptions about them. So now, I've, I've, 
I find it about just making it even more complex because obviously once it's if you've got existing states like Germany, Austria, Hungary, you've maybe got a framework to, to administrate. From 1918 to the early 1920s, you have the collapse of these empires, you have revolutions, you have wars, and you also have a number of pogroms in, in Western Ukraine against Jewish communities there. How did the JDC actually try and get aid into this highly fluid and dynamic and unstable situation from around 1918 to the early sort of 1920s? Yeah, um, so thanks for that question. Um, so I think that one of the ways that the the JDC or the joint try to think about their their whole effort was by thinking about humanitarian theaters and thinking about the the relationship between war fronts and how humanitarian operations had to function. So, and, and kind of to what degree operations could scale up. So the way they kind of organized themselves in from 1914 to 1918 was there was the kind of Central European theater, there was the Russian theater, and then there was a kind of Ottoman theater. But exactly which places fell into those theaters depended on where exactly the fronts were at any given moment in time. In, in 1918, after the armistice, there's sort of a, a legacy of those theaters that carries into the humanitarian work thereafter. That never really goes away. Um, but exactly where its borders are and what can be done in each theater then have to change. So that Russian theater, which after 1918 is Soviet Russia, ha has to have like one set of things happening there. Um, and then what becomes uh, East Central Europe with all of the new states um, that were formerly part of the Russian Empire, um, especially Poland, um, that can be accessed directly rather than having to kind of go through specific wartime channels, um, particularly after 1919. Um, Herbert Hoover leads the American humanitarian mission to Poland basically as soon as possible in, in 1919. And the Joint Distribution Committee is with Herbert Hoover as he traveled from Paris to Poland to first try to sort out post-armistice humanitarian relief. Um, and it's from Poland that the sort of Central European, Central and East Central European theater kind of develops um, after 1918. Um, and then there's that third theater of of what had been the Ottoman Empire. And some of those places kind of get put into the European theater. And I, the kind of center of gravity moves from Constantinople, where the US ambassador is, towards Jerusalem and Palestine, which is really the center of uh, Jewish activity in the former Ottoman Empire. Um, and post 1917, um, according to the Balfour Declaration, is a, new, a Jewish 
national home of some variety and is now under British mandate control. Um, and so that is kind of now accessed via negotiations with Britain. Um, and in some sense, I think what your question is about was particularly that Soviet, that Soviet situation. That was the most challenging. And there are documents in the Joint's archives about them just trying to figure out how to reach Russian Jews or Ukrainian Jews. Um, the majority of Jews in need there were really, they were in Ukraine and Belarus. Um, how to do it? How do you reach them when basically Soviet Russia is so cut off from the rest of the world? And this was like a multi-year experimentation. So first of all, um, as it turned out, some Russian Jewish organizations just continued to borrow money against the name of the Joint Distribution Committee in the hopes that one day the Joint could pay it back. Um, so some humanitarianism just continued uninterrupted. Um, the Russian Jewish community was reasonably well organized, kind of constantly reorganizing itself during these revolutionary and civil war processes and able to like logistically manage lots of stuff on its own. Um, and then it could sometimes get credit um, in some ways um, by borrowing against the JDC's name. But then the other thing was that um, a few American Jewish humanitarian workers basically kept following Polish troops and other kind of paramilitary things going along, going on in kind of the eastern reaches of Poland um, as it bordered Belarus and Ukraine. And if there were any incursions into those territories, the, the joint workers would basically run after them and bring in humanitarian aid and kind of get information from whatever communities they managed to reach in those kind of moments when when those areas were occupied by like Polish troops. Um, and then I think sometimes that aid would then like move further inwards um, once the troops then crossed or kind of kicked back towards Poland. Um, and then eventually, um, basically the joint negotiated a kind of humanitarian treaty with the Soviet government. And the Soviet government, I think, did this because they thought it was going to give them a window on the West um, to, to bring in aid. And it never really worked. It didn't get a lot of aid there, but the joint tried and it got some people kind of in to see what was going on. Uh, and, and then um, the Quakers managed to get into Soviet Russia and Jewish organizations managed to provide some aid via the Quakers. And then what really worked eventually was that um, there was a famine in the Volga region and um, Soviet Russia asked for American aid. And Herbert Hoover came to the rescue and he allowed uh, American Jewish organizations, Joint Distribution Committee to come with him and um, so American Jews kind of headed the 
in general American famine relief that was going on in Ukraine. Um, and they did it under the name of Hoover's uh, American Relief Administration, not as a Jewish organization. And they did relief not just for Jews. Um, and they made, but they made sure to reach the Jews in Ukraine as part of this American uh, humanitarian relief program. Um, and that's basically how in those like precarious early years of, uh, of the Soviet Union, uh, American Jews, Americans generally got in. And it was very difficult and it was very upsetting to American humanitarians how little aid they were able to get in relative to the need that would occasionally kind of be exposed they would they would kind of get information in various ways about just how much need there was and they realized that it was very little compared to what was actually needed but they did get some in and some information out um and then it, it's really like in kind of 1922 when there were more long term and greater um opportunities for for aid to get in soviet russia Soviet Union. And my penultimate question is, what do you think the legacy of your work is? How does it shape our perceptions of the Great War? There's so many different ways to think about this. Um, I think, first of all, I just thinking about the Eastern Front and its importance in understanding uh, the way in which the, the Great War didn't really end in 1918. And how sort of joined up thinking about the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War and the Polish Soviet War um, and and how how kind of thinking about these kind of the, the paramilitary violence, civil war, how we should actually think about these things when we think about the Great War. And it's really it it kind of adds a totally different dimension to understanding what modern war is and how it is that genocide, for example, and, and ethnic violence has become so closely connected to modern war. Um, and I mean, that's true also if you think about the Ottoman Empire and the Armenian genocide and the Balkan wars that happened right before what people normally say the First World War starts in 1914. But if you if you think about the Balkan Wars. I mean, maybe the First World War actually starts a few a few years earlier. Um, so I think that you know this this focus on kind of minority, um, like anti anti minority violence, genocidal, ethnic cleansing kind of things that go on within the war, um, and kind of smaller wars within the war is really really important and you don't see that on the western front so i think that's that's one one thing to think about another thing is this kind of importance of america and i think you know america was mostly a neutral power it doesn't really i mean people think of america as being really important kind of ending the war but again there's been very little thinking and i'm kind of one of the people who has really been thinking about the way in which American soft power really is crucial and comes into existence at this juncture. Um, and that's, you know, it's really the First World War, not not the Second World War, where America becomes a great power. And it's not really because of its military might, it's because of all of this, 
humanitarian stuff that it did during the war and then the legacies that that set up. I mean, then America had huge cultural influence in Europe um, between the wars. Um, Rockefeller Foundation even, I mean, Rockefeller Foundation is doing all this humanitarian work and then it goes on to establish all kinds of important scientific standards kind of indefinitely in the interwar period. Um, so that's another thing. I mean, there are other people who have been working on American humanitarianism and the First World War, but I'm kind of amongst amongst them. Um, and then I think there's a kind of specific uh, Jewish legacy to be thought about here, um, which is kind of the interconnection between the experience, the Jewish experience of the First World War and and the Holocaust, um, and the way in which you know that extreme violence against Jews in the First World War happened and basically you know happened with impunity and and it's you know it if tens or hundreds of thousands of jews could have been killed in ukraine alone and nothing happened to any of the perpetrators and that i mean there were also pogroms and major anti-jewish violence in other places it wasn't confined to ukraine i mean also happening in romania and poland um we have Walter Rattenau's assassination. I mean, there's there's over a, a million uh, Jewish refugees from the First World War. Like a million. That's so many people. There are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jewish war orphans after the First World War. Again, like nobody, I'm kind of the first person that's been trying to count those war orphans, but I don't have some I haven't specifically sat down to try every method of counting them. Um, but, you know, documents from the time, you kind of add them up from different countries and, you know, you, you come out to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. I mean, this, the First World War completely destroys Jewish way of life. It wasn't, I mean, Jews themselves, like six million of them died in World War II, but their way of life and the communities to which they belonged and were destroyed in World War One, and their vulnerability was made completely obvious in World War One, and their displacement into um, city centers across Europe um, from their kind of small villages into Warsaw, Budapest, Vilna, Prague, Berlin, Vienna, Paris, London etc meant that they were like really visible targets um research on jews and france um in world war ii show that you know it was jews of foreign origin in france who were far more likely to be murdered in the holocaust they were first world war refugees i don't think people think about that people don't know that nobody's thought about that. So I think that in some sense, I'm kind of offering this kind of totally different story about seeing the Holocaust and the onset of the Holocaust through the Jewish experience of the First World War. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work? Um, 
So as I mentioned at the very start, um, my book on this subject uh, came out with Cambridge University Press um, in 2021. It's called International Jewish Humanitarianism in the Age of the Great War. Um, it won um, a US National Jewish Book Award uh, last year for writing based on archival material. Um, and it's a reasonably affordable price at uh, less than 30 pounds. So you can get you can get the book or order it to your library. Libraries can easily order things from um, Cambridge University Press. Um, I also there are some uh, recordings of more formal book talks um, online if you Google my name. Um, and I have a couple of articles out too on the subject, but I didn't publish that much on this um, outside of the, the monograph itself. I wanted to be able to tell the whole story. So really, the way to really learn about this is, is to get access to the book. Jacqueline, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.